Now, you know, when I say that, uh, we, that little prayer about, I receive with meekness the engrafted word which they will save my soul. I'm not saying that the ministry of the word saves you for heaven. What it means is the soul is, is suke. That's the Greek word. And there it's telling us that the word saves and preserves your mind, your will, and your emotions. Can, can I just put it this way? The word is our sanity. It is mine. I mean, we're in a nutty world, and I go to the Word for sanity. Amen? All right, tonight we're going to talk about mobs, mayhem, and church plants. Sounds like 21st century. Mobs, mayhem, and church plants. Uh, but we're going, to, we're going to cover 18 and 19 of Acts, those two chapters. And um, so let's dig in. Last time we closed out looking at Paul's message to the Athenian philosophers who gathered together just to hear some new thing. That was their deal. While he preached well, you remember, he failed to mention the name of Jesus. And as a result, his harvest of souls was never smaller in the book of Acts. You don't see a smaller harvest than when he failed to mention the name of Jesus. He was trying to be a little, a little philosophically slick with them and kind of call Jesus the man. But, hey, you need to say that name. Amen? Amen? So let's say it. Jesus. Jesus. You ever notice when lost people get mad, they never say Buddha. (laughs) They never say Mohammed. No, but they'll curse with Jesus' name. Why? Because the devil wants them to use it as a curse word. Anyway, that's free. Now, let's start chapter 18. Here it says, now, we're going to see three key people in this chapter who are going to be great helps to Paul's ministry. Three key people. Aquila, his wife Priscilla, and a great orator named Apollos. When God wants to bless you, he puts a person in your life. When Satan wants to destroy you, he puts a person in your life. Relationships matter. So, Now, God's blessing Paul. Let's read. After these things, Paul departed from Athens, and he went to Corinth. Now, in Paul's day, let's talk about this city of Corinth. It was the political capital of Greece. So when he went to Corinth, this was a major city. Geographically, it was a natural land bridge with harbors facing two different seas, east and west, sea routes, and land routes converged on Corinth. So it was the chief market city between Asia and Italy. So this was an easily accessible city. You know, they're making garden acres out here into four lanes. You could say that we're going to have now two, two more or a more major way to reach us because that garden acres is going to be a major thoroughfare. It's going to even more put us on the easily accessible map. But Corinth was just easy to get to in a lot of different ways. So it was just a, it was a bustling, happening city. But some have called Corinth the Vanity Fair of the Roman Empire. It was famous for the immoral worship of Venus, who was the Roman goddess of love, beauty, sex, fertility, prosperity, and desire. And the Temple of Venus, for instance, that was there in Corinth, housed a thousand sacred prostitutes. Corinth was hugely immoral. When I look at Corinth, I think of America. 
I'm sorry, but I do. America has become highly immoral. Um, It was so morally corrupt that the name Corinth became a synonym for immorality. If you were a Corinthian, it was a way of calling you immoral. No, so no wonder Paul had to write plenty to them regarding sexual sin. You remember what he wrote. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes to them, sexual sin is never right. Our bodies were not made for that, for that, but for the Lord. And the Lord wants to fill our bodies with himself. And don't you know that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, she becomes a part of him and he becomes a part of her? That's why I say, run from sexual sin. No other sin affects the body as this one does. When you sin this sin, it's against your own body. Now, what he's teaching the Corinthians, and I'm not going to linger long here because we've got a lot to cover, but what he's telling them is this. When you got saved, you are no longer owner of your own body. Your body became the Lord's. It's the Lord's body. And so he's, he's, he's letting them know your body now is the temple of the Holy Spirit, so you are not to give it over to immorality. But it's for the Lord. And see, that's where America has really lost it because the the message of America now is it's my body, I'll do what I want with it. And the whole thing with abortion, it's my body, I'll do what I want with it, which I've never understood because you're aborting another body. It has nothing to do with your body. It's another body you're killing. But that's the convoluted thinking of Americans right now. But here's the deal. He's teaching the Corinthians, hey, it's not yours to do what you want with it. But now it's the Lord's. And if you involve yourself in sexual sin, he's saying it's not only a sin against God, but it's a sin against your own body. You're sinning against yourself. I'm going to go so far as to say that sexual sin is a unique sin. It is a sin with more consequences than other sins. So the only way to avoid sexual sin is to give your body to the Lord. And that's in Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercy of God, brethren, that you present your what? Say it with me. Bodies, an acceptable sacrifice unto God, which is your reasonable service. So if you don't give your body to God, then you're probably going to mess up with it. So give it to God, especially in this culture. My Lord, you can't turn to the right or the left or up or down without being encountered with um, perversion and sexual sin and temptation. The only way you can walk in purity is give your body to God and stay in the word every day. Amen, Pastor Jeff, preach it. That's why I came tonight. Amen. Amen. We need to hear these things. Now, Paul has clearly landed in a city desperate for the gospel of Christ. Verse 2, he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, catch this, had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, that is a tent maker, he stayed with them and worked for by occupation. They were tent makers. Now, I want you to notice how... Anti-Semitism has always been with us, anti-Jewish, anti-Jew. Because all the way back in the Roman Empire, you've got 
Claudius Caesar, banishing Jews from Rome. And that's what drove Aquila and Priscilla out. And that's how they met Paul. So all the way back then and all through the centuries, there has been this anti-Semitic strain in the human race. And I'll tell you, folks, it's of the devil. Because we wouldn't have a Bible without the Jews. It was an olive-skinned Jew who died for us. And aside from Luke, who was Gentile, and some other Gentiles, you know, that are kind of scattered throughout the Bible, the majority of the Bible given to us by Jews. And God chose the Jews to be the chosen race through which Messiah came. But this anti-Semitism, in my opinion, comes straight from the bowels of hell. And, of course, any um, prejudice we should do away with. But this anti-Semitism, it's, ri- it's raising its ugly head again right now in our world. And we've got to resist it. I'm so thankful, and I'm not getting political here, but I'm so thankful that President Trump has extended an olive branch to Israel again and welcomed them with a warm embrace. Because that didn't happen for eight years. Okay, that's free. Now, among the Jews of that day, every boy was taught a trade. Now, there's an idea. Every boy was taught a trade. Paul had learned to be a tent maker by weaving goat's hair into cloth. He used this skill to support himself in his travels. And Aquila and Priscilla did the same thing, and they hired Paul, and which began a fast friendship between the three. And look what he did. Now, here goes Paul again, his habit. We're going to see this several times tonight. He made a beeline for the synagogue because he wanted to reach the Jewish people. And he persuaded both Jews and Greeks. He always went for his own countrymen. Always. Every new town he went into, he just wanted to know, where's the synagogue? Because I'm going to go for the Jew first. And he would go into the synagogue and he would begin debate. And we're going to see later, the only time he finally left is when it got so red hot And they were so angry at him, there was no other reason to stay. But he always went. And here he goes again. Now, to understand this, we're told in Romans 9 something that is just really, you know, I believe him, but it's really hard to understand how you could get to this place. But here's what Paul said in Romans 9, 1 to 3 about his love for the Jew. Oh, my Jewish brothers, how I long for you to come to Christ. My heart is heavy within me. And I grieve bitterly day and night because of you. Christ knows and the Holy Spirit knows that it is no mere pretense when I say I would be willing to be forever damned if that would save you. Can I be transparent with you tonight? I don't think I could do that. That is a level of love that... um, You know, maybe one day I'll know it. But now, can I see giving your life, laying your life down for someone you like, your children? Okay, I can go there. But forever damned in hell forever? Woo. But that's what he said. Everybody say with me, that's love. That's a love I can't get a hold of. I believe him. But what about that? He loved the Jewish people. 
Now next, when Silas and Timothy finally arrive from Macedonia, Paul testifies to his countrymen, the Jew, with increased vigor. Look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. That was his message. That's what he forgot in Athens. Jesus. He preached Jesus. Now, I had to think right here that time and again, we're shown in the book of Acts how Paul and Peter were led by the Spirit. Now, I just made some notes. We've seen them forbidden by the Spirit from preaching. We've seen them stirred by the Spirit, directed by the Spirit, and now compelled by the Spirit. Please notice with me, church, the Holy Ghost was their leader, their guide, their counselor, their advisor. Man, they had an intimate relationship. The Holy Spirit was integrally involved everywhere they went and in everything they did. When was the last time you were forbidden by the Spirit or stirred by the Spirit or directed by the Spirit or compelled by the Spirit? I can tell you those four things have happened to me this week already, and it should have been happening to you, and I'm sure it probably has. How many of you can say at least one of those four I've experienced this week? Forbidden, stirred, directed, compelled. Come on, let me see your hand. Look how the Holy Ghost is active in his church. Amen. Now, when the Jews refuse Christ Jesus as Savior, Paul washes his hands of them. Verse 6, when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He loved them. But it was a love-hate relationship, wasn't it? He loved them, but he said, you know what? See you later. I'm going to the Gentiles. Verse 7, and he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God. And look, Justice's house was right next door to the synagogue. He left, but he didn't go far. Then Crispus, mom, don't ever call your son Crispus. There may, I, I pray there's no Christmas here. Watch, I'll get, some, I'll get a letter in the mail from somewhere in the country when it goes on radio. Hey. I enjoy your program, but watch what you say. Sign Crispus. But then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, look at this. The ruler of the synagogue believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. And what you're seeing here is the beginning of the large, gifted, and influential Corinthian church. It happened right there. And how did it start? Paul went first to the Jewish people. And even though they blasphemed his Jesus, the head of the synagogue got saved. And so he always paid a price. Anytime Paul preached... There were two things that happened. People got saved, and he got attacked. People got saved, he got attacked. It was always a war zone, and it's still a war zone today. Now, verse 9. Now, the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. He said, don't be afraid. I love this right here. God has given me this verse in the past. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you. Everybody say, he is with me. When I hear the Lord tell me that, I can do anything, go anywhere, face anybody. When he says to me, I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city 
Oh, what a blessing that verse is. What a blessing that verse is. And so based on that word, Paul stayed for a year and six months teaching the word of God among them, and that's how the Corinthian church was born. Paul stayed for a year and six months, and they had the apostolic teaching of the apostle Paul for a year and a half, and he founded the Corinthian church. Now, Paul knew, here's why he knew the Lord needed to give him this word. He, he needed that word because he knew the Jewish community was watching this exploding new church with a jealous eye and probably wondered how long he'd be able to stay. And the Lord's word of encouragement to him was just what the doctor ordered. And uh, so ultimately his own countrymen rose up against him again in verse 12. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. This is a year and a half later, a year and a half into Corinth, in the Corinthian church, saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if this were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there'd be reason why I should bear with you. But if it's a question of words and names and your own law, take care of it yourself. I don't want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. So this time, the evil accusations of the Jews against Paul didn't work. In fact, it boomeranged bad against them. Look at verse 17. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, who had been leading the charge to put Paul in jail, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Gallio took no notice of these things. They were beating him right in front of Gallio, and he was just kind of looking around like he didn't even see it. Now, Sosthenes was one of the Jews trying to have Paul jailed, like I said. When it failed, he was driven into the streets where Roman anti-Semitism moved the crowd to beat him. So whereas he wanted to hurt Paul, it boomeranged and got on him. Folks, you got to be careful who you attack. Because if you come against, now, 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 I'm not saying that leaders are beyond criticism. We make a real mistake here. I've seen this in the body of Christ a lot. I've seen leaders who were doing wrong pull the don't judge a prophet card. And they dodge healthy, realistic criticism. Listen, some criticism is good, and no leader is above criticism. So don't pull the don't judge a prophet card every time somebody criticizes you. Uh, and I'm talking to some leaders here, perhaps, and it's true for me. I'll listen to criticism. I don't like it, but I'll listen to it. And I can tell what spirit it's coming from, if they're really wanting to help me or if they're just coming against me. And believe me, I've had full doses of both. And when I can tell it's coming from a bad spirit, I wash my hands, I walk away. One time somebody really came against me, and it, it shook me, and I walked away, and before I was 10 steps away, the Holy Ghost said to me, was that me? And I said, no, Lord. And he said, then you don't need to worry about it. And it lifted. Sometimes when somebody attacks you, you need to listen to the Holy Ghost. You need to say, Lord, was that you or was that flesh? If it was flesh, keep on trucking. 
and don't take it to heart, okay? But here's Sosthenes. He went against a genuine apostle and lied about him. It was a lie. And so the proverb came true. He that rolls a stone, it will return on his own head. Amen. You remember that Roadrunner cartoon? You remember that Roadrunner cartoon? I'll never forget it. There was Wile E. Coyote in the Roadrunner. And the Roadrunner always dodged Wile E. Coyote's attempts to ruin him, kill him, get him. And you remember that one where Wile E. Coyote is waiting for the Roadrunner to come running through the valley and you see the smoke trail coming up from the Roadrunner is running and he's about to pass and the Wile E. Coyote rolls the big boulder off the cliff and it rolls down and, and Roadrunner sees it. He's gone. He misses it. It rolls up the other side, rolls back down, comes back up, goes into the air and smashes Wile E. Coyote. There's the verse. He that rolls a stone, it will return on his own head. Especially if somebody is wrongly attacking you, it's going to come back on them. Now, verse 18. So Paul still remained a good while. <laughs> he said, hey, the guy that was coming against me just got whooped. So he stayed longer. Then he took leave of the brethren, sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sancria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to where? Say it with me. Ephesus. So now we're about to see the Ephesian church get birthed and left them there. But where'd he go? Everybody read it with me. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Man, Corinth, Ephesus, Antioch, didn't matter where he was, he went straight for the synagogue. First, the Corinthian church. Now this is the beginning of the Ephesian church. Paul sowing the gospel seed in the synagogue. So the Ephesian church is going to start the same way the Corinthian church did. Paul reaching out to the Jewish people first. Now verse 20, when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he didn't consent. But he took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. But I will return again to you, God willing. I've gotten more and more as I've gotten older where I say, when I'm talking to somebody about a plan, I've gotten more and more where I say, God willing. I'll be there, God willing. Um, I'll see you next week, God willing. Now you say, well, why, Jeff? Because I've come to the realization that life is very brief. And James said, go to now, you who say, today and tomorrow, we will go into such and such a city and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what tomorrow brings. For what you ought to say is, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. So more and more, I'm just saying, I'm just tagging the little things I say with, yeah, if the Lord wills. I preached last Sunday um, three times here, and then I went home, changed, and went straight to East Texas and preached a fourth time. And I had told these folks, I'll be there, Lord willing. When I walked in, they were going, they were looking. Oh, so glad to see you. We had a great time, too. God moved. I saw a lot of old friends, a lot of old uh, folks that were in my, my former church and came up to me and said, hey, you remember me? I've gotten real good at going, sister, brother, because I couldn't remember the names. Well, we had a great time. Now, Look at verse 20. When they asked him to stay longer, he said, no, I got to go, uh, God willing, to Jerusalem. And he sailed from Ephesus. 
And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went again down to Antioch. Now look at this, this Apostle Paul. He is tireless, relentless. It says, after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, in order, strengthening all the disciples. So he's backtracking and recovering the territory he covered in the first missionary journey. And this was a day in the life of Paul. Always on the move, always preaching the gospel, always encouraging the believers, always as he instructed us, always abounding in the work of the Lord. If you want to know how to get over yourself, get out of depression, get out of the blues, get out of a pity party, do what Paul did. Get into the work of the Lord and abound in the work of the Lord. Just start ministering to people, and it will release healing to you. Amen? Now, next, Paul meets Apollos. Here comes the great orator. Verse 24, now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, look what it said about him. He was mighty in the scriptures, but he was limited in his understanding of Jesus. He knew the Old Testament, but he had some flaws in his understanding. But even with what he had, he spoke boldly in the synagogue. And when Aquila and Priscilla, who had walked in the synagogue, heard him, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, here's the deal. He was acquainted with the story of Jesus. And he made the most of what he knew, which we should all do. He made the most of what he had. He was, we're told, fervent in spirit, which is from the Greek word zeo, meaning to boil. Boy, I like that. If you're fervent, you're boiling. Man, give me a thousand boiling Christians and we'll turn Fort Worth upside down. Because Jesus talked about the curse of lukewarmness. And he said, I'd rather you be cold or hot, boiling, but not lukewarm. But here is this man. He didn't even fully understand Jesus, but he's boiling with zeal. Can we lift our hands and say, Lord, help me to boil. Help me to boil with fervency in Jesus' name. So refusing to publicly correct him, they pulled him aside and shared Jesus more accurately. And I want you to look at his attitude. He had a teachable spirit, and he received it. He didn't say to them, hey, you're talking to a great orator here. Leave me alone. You don't know who you're talking to. No, when they could give him a better understanding of Jesus, he had a teachable spirit. I can help anybody who's teachable, but I can't help anybody who's not. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. That's Apollos. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly Showing from the scriptures, what? That Jesus is the Christ. So now he's got better understanding and he's preaching Jesus. Folks, we got one thing to preach and that's Jesus. Amen? I mean, there's only one thing to preach. Now tomorrow, I'm gonna be downtown. They've asked me to give the invitation for people to be saved at the Fort Worth City Gathering uh, for the National Day of Prayer. 
Now, somebody's speaking in front of me. I've never met them, but they've asked me to step in after he's done and give the invitation. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to have one thing on my lips, Jesus. Jesus. And you can come to Jesus right now. And uh, so we're going to be talking about that a little bit more at the end and invite any of you that might want to come and pray for me because I'd rather preach and give the invitation. So I'm just going to follow somebody and give the invitation. But God will do it. Now, chapter 19, here we're going to chapter 19, is about to get real supernatural. There's some great, great stories here. Look at verse 1. It happened when Apoll- while Apollos was at Corinth. So you've got the great orator Apollos in Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. So these two future great churches have two great men in them. Apollos in Corinth, Paul in Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we haven't even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now we go, wow, but I guarantee you folks, there are churches everywhere. I could go in and say, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they say, we didn't even know. What's the Holy Spirit? I know I'm right because I've been in them. So they don't even know about the Holy Spirit being received after salvation. And he said to them, well, then into what were you baptized? And they said, John's baptism. And then Paul said, well, that's the problem. John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him whom, who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of who? The Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. I mean, they had a Pentecost all on their own right there. And there were about 12 men in all. Now, let me comment on this for a minute. These men didn't have the Holy Spirit for one reason only. They were not yet Christians. They had been baptized in in John's baptism, but they had not been baptized in the name of Jesus. They had not come to Christ. They were not yet Christians. You say, well, how do you know that for sure, Jeff? Because of what Paul wrote. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 9, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ... He's none of his. So the only people on earth who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit are those who have come to Jesus. And that's the huge distinction between Christianity and all other world religions. It's one distinction. There's kajillions of them. But this is a big one. Islam, you don't get the Holy Spirit inside of you. Buddhism, you don't get the Holy Spirit inside of you. Confucianism, Zoroastrianism, any of the world religions, you don't get the Holy Spirit inside of you. God only sends the Holy Spirit to live inside those who call upon the name of his son. If any have not the Spirit of Christ, they are not his. I'm so thankful for the Holy Spirit. I thank God for the Holy Spirit all the time. Thank God for the Holy Spirit who leads us and guides us and strengthens us and counsels us and advises us and picks us up when we mess up and turns our messes into messages and and helps us every step of the way. Thank God for the Holy Spirit. Can we say thank God for the Holy Spirit? But see, he only comes through those who call on Christ. He comes into the heart 
of the person who repents and says, Jesus, forgive me. And I look to you as my Savior and Lord. And they knew only of John's water baptism, but not the full message of Christ. And once they embraced Christ and were baptized in his name, they were immediately filled with the Spirit. And when they were saved, they both received the Spirit, just like you. When they were saved and when you were saved, they and you both received the Spirit and were baptized in the Spirit. The baptism puts me in Christ. The gift puts Christ in me. I'm going to say that again. The baptism of the Spirit put me in Christ. The gift of the Holy Spirit put Christ in me. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's not next to you, around you. Well, he's that too, but he's primarily in you. And your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The baptism in the Spirit makes me a member of his body. The gift makes my body his temple. Do you realize that the Spirit of God that lives in you is the very Holy Spirit that, that abided in the Holy of Holies, the Shekinah glory, that you had to go beyond the veil and walked in, and there was the Shekinah glory of God, and only the high priest could go in? Do you know that that Spirit now dwells in you? I mean, that ought to give you holy ghost bumps on top of your holy ghost bumps. How, how sacred is that? Now, I want you to note something about the fact they spoke in tongues. And I'm going to give you a question. If tongues only consisted of the Pentecost type, where an earthly dialect is spoken by those who never learned it, because that's what happened at Pentecost. Remember, they all said we hear them speaking the wonderful works of God in our own language, a language they had never learned, but they spoke in the language. If that, if every time somebody spoke in tongues in the book of Acts was Pentecost tongues, why did these men need to speak in tongues? Because only Paul was standing there. He didn't need to hear the gospel in a language he didn't know or that they had never learned. You see where I'm going with this? He did not, in other words, it's Paul and 12 men. The Holy Spirit has fallen on them. They speak in tongues. If it was Pentecost tongues, then that means it was an earthly dialect. Why would they be speaking an earthly dialect they'd never learned when only Paul was standing there? He was saved, I do believe. My point is this. There are two kinds of tongues I see in the Bible. One is the earthly dialect kind, where somebody is given the gift of speaking a language they never learned. I've never heard that personally. I've heard of it happening on the foreign field. I've never witnessed that myself. Maybe you have. But there's that kind. And then there is the devotional prayer language in 1 Corinthians 14 too, where we speak not to men but to God. And how be it no man understands. It seems to me it had to be that kind because there's no need for them to speak in an earthly dialect when Paul was the only one standing there and he was saved. Sila. That means just think about that. And he went into the, now verse 8, he went into the synagogue. There he goes again. 
and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. I'm just picturing, picture Paul now. Let's say this is a synagogue. We're all here, and I'm a Jewish leader, and I'm reading out of the Old Testament. All of a sudden, somebody walks in one of those back doors, sits on the back row, and all of a sudden, he pipes up right when I'm in the middle of something and says, but what about this? And suddenly, we're all looking at this person, going, hello, do I know you? Let me talk to you about Jesus the Christ, the Messiah you're reading about all the time in the Old Testament. I want to talk to you about those messianic prophecies being fulfilled. And now maybe he's standing up and walking a little bit closer to the front. Before you know it, he is holding the ear of everybody in that place. And he stayed for three months. And they would debate with him. And he would persuade them. He was a master orator, a master teacher. He would have won on the college debate team every time. And that's the way he made his way into a city. He went to God's chosen first. And it says in verse 9, when, they were, when some of them were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way. I love the way it's called. The Christianity was called the way back then, the way before the multitude. He departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. I'm sorry. I love dinosaurs. I know my Tyrannosaurus Rex. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And this continued for two years. Wow. He would, look what he did. Two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. He was sowing that word seed every day. And it eventually would turn into a church. Now, I want you to notice something. Paul's red line in the sand for when he would cease trying to reach someone is when they began to curse the Lord. What does it say they did? It says, when some were hardened and did not believe, but began to absolutely speak evil, evil of Jesus. That was Paul's red line in the sand. That's when he said, you know what? I'm done. And he took his disciples and they left. Now, let me just tell you something tonight, dear church. I've learned there is a time to walk away. I mean, I've talked to people all of my life. I started witnessing for Jesus sincerely when I was 18. And I've talked to all kinds of people. And I've had people curse the Lord and curse me. And there comes a moment where there's a red line in the sand. And the Lord says, you're done. You're free to walk. Leave them to me and walk. Because, th th listen, there's only two kinds of people. Yes people and no people. And I've learned I will not spend forever with no people. I'm going to go find the yes people. And so if somebody is, is, is cursing Jesus and they really wax vile, I'm out of there. There's a red line in the sand. And there's a red line in the sand with God too. And only God knows when that is. But it says in Romans 1, he, there was a red line in the sand with civilizations that Paul was referring to, mainly, I believe, the Romans and the Jewish people who had rejected Messiah when it says God turned them over. It says it three times. He gave them up gave them up, gave them over. There was, there was a red line in the sand. 
gave them over. And when, and when they, God gives somebody over, it means he lifts his hand. You never, 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 I can't think of a worse thing that could happen to anybody than that God would lift his hand and give them over. Because what does he give them over to? Themselves. Their flesh. He just gives them over. And when you're given over to your flesh and there's no divine restraint on you, you will do anything. There's nothing you won't do. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because right now, the whole world is under a level of divine restraint. You do realize that. It may not look that way. But if the Holy Spirit were taken from the world completely right now, oh, my Lord, we would be in a living, breathing hell. I don't know how long the whole human race would last. There is a divine restraint right now on mankind. But here, Paul had a lie in the sand. He said, I'm done. We're out of here. And as he, he chose as his new teaching site, the school of Tyrannus, which means tyrant. How many of you ever had a teacher like that? Do you ever have a teacher where you said tyrant? They're tyrants. They're just tyrants. They're out to get me. Tyrannus may very well have been a Jewish convert of Paul's. Don't name your son Crispus and don't name them Tyrannus. May very well have been a Jewish convert of Paul's. Either way, he opened his lecture hall to the brilliant Christian scholar where Paul taught freely for two years. Can you imagine attending that class of the Apostle Paul's for two years? I would pay any, any tuition to be in that class. Now, verse 11, now God worked, here we go, unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick. Now, look what happened. And the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. And he wasn't selling them. You didn't get... Pauline aprons and handkerchiefs going out, cut from a cloth, saying for a, for a free gift amount of, you can have this handkerchief. It makes me sick to my stomach when I see this foolishness happening in the body of Christ. It gives us all a bad name. Don't tell me that thing that you're asking for money for has any anointing on it. It's got your greedy grease on it. Jeff, you ought not say that. Oh, yes, I should. I'm so sick of it. There's so many scams out there. I don't need to pay to be healed. I don't need to pay for your handkerchief. Okay, I'm going to stop. Let's look at the real deal here. This is the real thing. Now, let me break this down. I'll give you three words. The Greek word for body here is they were brought from Paul's body. The word for body here is skin. And it occurs only in this verse, in the entire New Testament. This Greek word for skin is used only here. So it, it, was, on, it was touching his skin. Now, the word for handkerchief is napkin. And it, you know what it means? Literally, sweat cloth. It's used to describe the napkin wrapped around the face of the dead Lazarus and of our Lord in the tomb. Same word, same Greek word. This word for sweat cloth or napkin was used in those two other instances. So you got the napkin, you got the, the body and, and the handkerchief, and now the apron. The apron here refers to the linen aprons used by Paul 
in tent making. So the napkin was the sweat rag he wore on his head. Can I say it? Paul had a do-rag <laughs> when he worked. <laughs> so it makes some of you guys feel good. Some of you motorcycle riders, Paul had a do-rag for his head. All right? Now, the napkin was the sweat rag he wore on his head, and the apron was the cloth he tied around his waist. Now, now I want you to think. He's laboring. He's building tents. He's sweating into this thing on his head, and he's getting this apron around his body all dirty, and it's those that were taken out and laid on the sick. Is there maybe a connection between Paul laboring to make the money to be able to minister and the fact that God took these humble, I mean, you, you could not find a more mundane article to be used to convey miracle power than a do-rag and an apron full of sweat and dirt. Say with me, God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. That's what I see in this. This was just the ordinary. It smelled like sweat. It was sweaty. It was kind of nasty. But they put it on the sick or the demon possessed, and they were healed. I call that an unusual miracle. I don't think, I don't think, the, quote, anointed napkins being sent out have anybody's work sweat on them. Wow, what an incredible God we serve. Bring, bring that do-rag over here. I'm not feeling good either. And they were healed. Then some of the, I, I love this story, then some of the itinerant Jewish, we're about to see seven New Testament streakers. Are you ready? <laughs> some of you can't believe I said that. But it's true. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus call on the name or call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Now look, it says they took it upon themselves. God didn't tell them to do it. And they said, We exorcise you by the Jesus who Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? I preached a message once. Now, now hang on, don't freak out on me. I called it, who in hell are you? Now, please follow the English. Are you known in hell? Is your walk with God so strong, you're known in hell? Because look what the demon said. We know Paul. And we know Jesus, but we sure don't know you. Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I told you, seven New Testament streakers. I bet that was a sight. Good thing there were not iPhone cams in those days. Because we'd have had some video. Now, this became known, I bet it did, both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. The lesson here is you can't give what you don't have. 
These men didn't know Jesus. How can they deliver somebody in Jesus' name when they don't know him? They only knew of him, and they were made fools of by a demon. Next, here, the, now the supernatural keeps on moving. Verse 18, many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Notice the level of repentance. They believed, confessed, and told their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Notice, to get right with God, money meant nothing to them. Now, let me comment here. There are things attached to the occult that are what we might call accursed. That is, they represent Satan. Let me name some. Fortune-telling cards, Ouija boards, some books about the occult, many books about the occult. Lord, go into any bookstore now. Go into any Barnes & Noble and go into the um, um, religious section, in, into the New Age section, any of those. The book, they're, they're filled with books on the occult, the supernatural. Portals into another world. How to access spirits from another world. How, how to go through the portal, which, by the way, has become Christians speak in some churches, and it really concerns me. I don't see the word portal used in the New Testament about going into the spirit world. I see the Holy Ghost falls on you. But there's all this portal talk in some churches. Well, we really broke through a portal. I don't know what that is, and I don't want to break through one. But there are things that represent Satan, and with them, they bring an evil presence. I really believe that. These new Christians knew it, and they burned these things, representing their utter renunciation of evil to follow Jesus. When I got filled with the Spirit and began to really follow the Lord, I got a great big stack of stuff that I took and burned. I burned hundreds of dollars of albums when there was albums. That dates me, but there were albums, even some 45s. Some of you don't even know what that is. I burned some 8-tracks. Now, I burned them, and I can tell you that when I burned them, the place where I was living felt more peaceful because there were things attached to them, satanic stuff, okay? I don't know what's in your house. Maybe you ought to go through it. Now, verse 21, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. Now, here comes another demonic situation. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana brought no small profit to the craftsmen. So here's money involved again. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation. And he said, men, you know that we have our prosperity. We're making our living by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people from idolatry is what he's saying, saying that they are not gods, which are made with hands. 
So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Wow. Man, was this first century in bondage or what? Now notice how red-hot, genuine revival flushes out of the shadows the works of Satan. Everywhere this man went, Paul, <laughs> the devil was flushed out of, out of the bushes, right? Diana of the Ephesians was not the chaste huntress of Greek mythology. But here's what she was in this city, a monstrous obscenity, gross and repelling, who was worshipped sensually to the extreme. And what these silversmiths were making, these idols of Diana, were obscene. They were pornographic. Now notice the Holy Spirit attacked and neutralized this awful idolatry in Ephesus and in doing so kicked up a hornet's nest of fury. As with the owners of the fortune-telling, you remember the fortune-telling slave girl in Philippi who had a demon cast over by Paul and it caused the original jailhouse rock and all of that? The producers of the obscene statues of Diana were furious over losing their money and stirred up yet another ignorant mob. Look at these ignorant mobs. And think of today, because there's a lot of ignorant mobs today. Verse 28, now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with what? That's what mobs do, they bring confusion. And rushed into the theater with one accord, they seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people and calm them down, the disciples wouldn't let, let him go in there because they knew he would have been torn to pieces. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. And some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was what? Confused, which is what the devil always does. And most of them, I love this, most of them did not know why they had come together. That happens every Easter. We had a thousand more people Easter weekend than normal. Where'd they go? Where did they go? If you had said to those thousand people, why are you here? Well, I'm not sure. It's just Easter. They would have said, I don't know why we've come together, except it's Easter, and that's kind of a, isn't that a, Lord, sort of a church-going weekend, Sunday? I'm just being religious. I'm putting in my little card, doing my little religious thing for the year. Now look what happened. They drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice, cried out for about two hours, they were crying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. That is ignorant zeal. Now, when Paul was in prison in Rome, you may remember, awaiting his execution by Nero, he mentioned in his last letter to Timothy a man named Alexander, the coppersmith, who did me much harm. This Alexander was apparently an eloquent and dangerous foe of Christianity. And Paul warned Timothy to beware of him. Everybody look at me a minute. There are some people you should be aware of, and there are some people you should beware of. Do you see the difference? There are some people you, you should just know, hey, maybe I need to be a little careful with this person. There are some people you should know to avoid. Be aware of some, beware of others. Paul told, tells Timothy, beware. 
of Alexander because he really harmed me. Now, this Alexander is also mentioned in 1 Timothy where Paul says that there was an Alexander who had made shipwreck of the faith who Paul had found it necessary to hand over to Satan for judgment. Now, I believe the two Alexanders in 1 and 2 Timothy are the same one. In 1 Timothy, he had shipwrecked in the faith. By 2 Timothy, he was an active foe of Christianity. He's one of these people who got close, but not close enough. He didn't put down roots like Jesus' parable of the sower talks about. Something happened, and he was close, and he walked away. And it's usually people who get close and walk away that become the most vitriolic critics of Christianity. And this was Alexander. Finally, as the mob roars, a voice of reason steps forward, and we're about to finish. Verse 35, when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana? That's why we're here. We're here to guard Diana. And of the image which fell down from Zeus, therefore, since these things, look what he says, cannot be denied. You ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. Notice how he says that the story of Diana as a genuine goddess was real. They really believed in her. And that they believed that her image had fallen down to earth from Zeus, who was the Greek mythological god. He didn't even exist. But they believed that the original idol of Diana had fallen down from, from heaven, from Zeus. And he said, this can't be denied. They were totally deceived. Verse 37, for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a say, uh, case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when a man of reason, even though he was totally deceived, said these things in a calm voice, the assembly was dismissed. Oh, folks, would you look at what Paul dived into like a buzzsaw? And preach the gospel and turn these cities upside down. Can we stand together? Boy, isn't this good stuff? This book of Acts is good stuff. Thank you, Lord. How many of you are thankful that Jesus de delivered you from myths and fables and futility? And come on, demonism, demons, demon involvement in your life, satanic stuff. How many of you are glad that you've been set free indeed? He who knows, knows the Son shall be free indeed. He whom the Son frees is free indeed. So let's just lift our hands to the Savior of the world, who Paul preached and Peter preached, and they changed the world. Jesus, we thank you for your mighty name, for your power, for your might. Lord, we worship your name today. Thank you for giving us genuine freedom, for delivering us from futility and foolishness and darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son.